Good morning, beautiful people. This is Nube sharing space with you here at Prison Focus Radio on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 and on the World Wide Web at kpoo.com. Before we get started, I want to send a big shout out, a big cleansed fish of solidarity and love to all the people on the streets, the, the grassroots organizers, the activists, the advocates that have been doing this work for black liberation, for um, fighting for the human and civil rights of black, brown, and poor people for decades. Thank you for taking us to where we are now. This is a movement that I hope people will seize in this moment. Decide, are you on, do you believe in human rights or do you not? Because this is what it's about, I feel. This is a fight for our humanity. We cannot uh, dismiss where we are today um, when we consider that this country was founded on slavery, genocide, land theft, and rape. And it is the, and the continuation of that, subjugating people um, and the planet uh, for exploitation, for, for profit, um, for the, 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 uh, the building of, of capitalism um, is just is something that we have to reject. And it is being rejected. And so as, as this beautiful uprising is happening, I also want to encourage people to not get into this fight about um, peaceful protest versus other kinds of protest. Protest is protest. People need to get loud, stay loud, um, stay focused on the uh, hopefully the idea that this dehumanizing white supremacist system is no longer tolerable. We cannot find excuses for it anymore. Please find that place in yourself, that courage, that love, that radical love that says no more. Not only will I not act in dehumanizing ways, but I will not allow the dehumanization of others. Our humanity is at stake here, people. I'd like to read the exception clause, or I'd like to just read the 13th Amendment, which says, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. We have an amazing opportunity here to question everything. Don't co-opt. Listen, learn. We've got to, we have to continue with the movement for radical thinking, radical re-envisioning, radical transformation. This time is, this of these uprisings is so timely. It's so, it's scary. Um, it's challenging, but um, we have an opportunity here for envisioning, envisioning and real transformation. So which side are you going to be on? Side of human rights or not? I want to send out more love and solidarity to our friends and loved ones behind the walls and your families. Um, please know that we are still here for you. Of course, this is, platform is for you to hear your voices, so I won't speak too much longer. But I want to invite you, please, to um, subscribe to the newspaper. Write us your let letters to California Prison Focus. We always want to hear from you and your families. Um, if you do not have a subscription to the newspaper, which for those of you that are, are suffering the 
the torture of solitary confinement. Uh, receive that complimentary. Um, please, again, write to us and encourage um, your family and friends to get the newspaper as well. Um, and with that said, I'd also like to say, please, uh, for all of us listening out here, um, don't be shy about making a donation to California Prison Focus. The address to write to us is California Prison Focus 4408 Market Street, Suite A, Oakland, California, 94608. To get to our website, go to www.prisons.org. And if you want to reach me, uh, I'm at nube at prisons.org. So we are going to get started with the show. We've got some um, great voices to listen to today. Um, Again, I encourage you to uh, seize this moment for radical transformation. All right, here we go. We are going to be listening now to an an excerpt of a short uh, interview that Amy Goodman did. Amy, sorry, Amy Goodman of Democracy Now did with Robin, Dr. Robin Kelly. I think you're going to just love this. Now we go to Los Angeles, where we're joined by Robin Kelly professor of African-American studies at UCLA. He studies social movements, author of many books, including Freedom Dreams, The Black Radical Imagination. Professor Kelly, it's great to have you back with us, especially now. I mean, just in the last hours, you have the um, the icons of the Confederacy being tumbled throughout the United States. You have President Trump announcing he's giving his first campaign speech in months in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, the site of one of the worst massacres of black people in U.S. history, um, on Juneteenth, June 19th, this in the midst of this global uprising. Talk about this moment we're in. Right. Yeah, that's a slap in the face. Um, Let me begin by uh, talking about um, Felonis Floyd's testimony, because um, it was, you know, listening to it again is very emotional. It really captures the moment we're in. Uh, it, it moved me in part because we've been hearing this speech, I've been hearing this speech my entire life. Uh, I don't remember uh, a moment in my life when I hadn't heard someone talking about holding the police accountable, teaching cops to treat people with empathy and respect, uh, teaching them, you know, appropriate force. Uh, and I was really struck again, this kind of captures the moment by how George Floyd, um, you know, called the, the officers, sir. And this is something that his brother mentioned. As he was being killed, called them, sir. Uh, and it was a painful and telling revelation given, given how, you know, black men and women were beaten or even killed for not addressing an officer of the law or any white man as sir. You know, this, is ha- this happened to my, um, to my father-in-law. So in some ways... That question and the other question, which is, what is a black man's worth? You know, twenty dollars. Um, this moment that we're in now raises that question. You have mass protests around the world. Uh, coming back to a perennial question is, what are black lives worth? Um, are black lives worth more than uh, or less than property? Uh, I mean, Black Lives Matter drilled down on this question from the moment's inception. You know asking the question, what kind of society is this that values property over black life? Um, And 
you know, when you think about even your last guest talking about, you know, tear gassing, um, the fact that people are being tear gassed during a pandemic, you know, and over this question of whether or not uh, black life has value. You know, so this is a really crucial moment. Um, clearly, Trump and his ilk are uh, really drilling down on what I would argue is, you know, a, a fascist response. Um, it's, it's drilling down on a state that has no issue uh, taking people's lives over the smallest infraction. Uh, and I think, you know, I have a lot of, I, I, I shouldn't say hope, but I do have, I do imagine uh, real change occurring when you have uh, millions of people in the street saying, not what people said in 68, this is a very different moment, uh, but actually saying that we can't have police as we knew it. You know, um, you think about the, the uprisings in the 1960s, where so many of these struggles emerging out of, you know, ghetto uh, communities, uh, you know, demanding an end to police brutality, police violence, demanding an end to the denial of basic needs, services, jobs. And in those days, the demand... The response to the demands were things like diversity, inclusion, um, community oversight, more black cops, uh, demands that officers live in the community. Um, you know, and you compare that to defunding the police, to basically reorganizing the way we deal with public safety. Uh, and this is coming from many different circles, people who, who thought five, six years ago uh, that was a ridiculous demand, are now seeing it as not only viable, but we're seeing it happening. Um, we're seeing at least the beginnings of it happening. We'll see what how it turns out, you know. Oh, Professor Kelly, I want to go back to something that you wrote uh, immediately following uh, Trump's election in November 2016. You wrote that the U.S. needs a multiracial movement committed to, quote, dismantling the oppressive regimes of racism, heteropatriarchy, empire, and class exploitation that is at the root of inequality, precarity, materialism, and violence in many forms. You've just talked about how the demands of this movement are very different. Do you see what's happening now as what you wanted to happen in November 2016? Exactly. And not only that, but what I wrote in, in 2016 was actually a reflection of what was already happening on the ground. So in some respects, remember the Movement for Black Lives put out their, their policy platform in August of 2016. Uh, and one of the things I really, we all have to acknowledge is that we're not here by accident. You know, this is not a spontaneous response to the pandemic and suddenly uh, white people are, are waking up and saying, oh, wait a second, Black Lives Matter. No, this is a product of enormous work uh, going back well before, you know, Trayvon Martin. But, you know, but you think about, you know, all the organizing work for the Movement for Black Lives, Black Lives Matter, uh, the women who organize Black Lives Matter, um, initiated Opal Tometi, Alicia Garza, Patrice Cullors, uh, people like Melina Abdullah, Charlene Carruthers of Black Youth uh, Project 100, uh, all the scholar activists who've been working on this question 
Barbara Vance, Kimberly Crenshaw, Angela Davis, Ruth Wilson Gilmore. Um, and then before that, the Malcolm X grassroots movement, uh, Cop Watch, uh, Dignity and Power, Critical Resistance, the African American Policy Forum, these were uh, initiatives on the ground who did all this political education, all this organizing work, um, recharge genocide, dream defenders, the rising majority, black organizing for leadership and dignity, and also groups like Surge, you know, standing up for racial justice, um, which deals with, you know, uh, white racism. So you have an infrastructure in place that that has been doing this work for a decade or more, more than a decade. And that's why people are out here. That's why people can come out to the streets and simply roll off their tongue words like defund the police, um, connect um, transphobia, homophobia, um, uh, uh, gender oppression, patriarchy to uh, racial capitalism and to racial violence, connect these things in ways that I think are kind of unprecedented. But again, without the organizing work, we would not be here, you know? And I think it's very important to even go back and acknowledge how the foundations were laid by the Combahee River Collective, you know, by people like Barbara Smith, um, raised by the Third World Women's Alliance. I mean, fighting around questions of connecting sterilization, uh, abortion rights uh, with, you know, racism. You know, so these kinds of links, these connections, and also with war uh, are important. So there's a long history that, that got us here. And, and what the real question now is whether or not this can be sustained, because we know throughout history, we've had revolutionary moments after Reconstruction in the 1870s, followed by backlash and by what we can describe as American fascism. We have... Um, the, the sort of second reconstruction of the 1960s, followed by backlash, the rise of the Klan, the tamping down on the strike wave in the 1970s, um, uh, the neoliberalism, and now we're facing another one. We have these forces trying to transform the world in a way that could actually bring safety and prosperity to all versus a president and a regime that asks know, what happened to Gone with the Wind? Well, Professor Kelly, you, you talked about the long history of this movement, which certainly is the case. Uh, it builds on many precursors of this kind of uh, rebellion. But it also has their dimensions of a dark side in some of the phrases that are being employed, especially in the media here, some of the media, uh, and that is looting. Looting is, in fact, loot is a Hindi word with Sanskritic origins, and it entered the language in colonial India uh, with South Asian historian Vazira Zamindar pointing out that its initial usage, one of its initial usages, was to define as rapists and looters those who were involved in the first rebellion against the East India Company in 1857, uh, and I mean, it's very difficult to imagine, and they were characterized as looters and rapists. It's very difficult to imagine that Trump would know this history, uh, but he certainly knows of its connotations. So could you talk about the use of the term looting in, in the media and the fact that you've said every single rebellion and uprising has included it? Right. 
Well, you know, the other day I did a, um, a Google News search, you know, sort of search engine and put in looting. And I got one, I got 19 million hits. And then I put in excessive force and got 1.1 million hits. So what's interesting is the way that the media really has uh, grabbed on to looting as the problem. It, dis- it displaces some of the major issues that are being raised, especially the, the violence of the police against protesters. And so what's interesting about looting, you know, if you look at the long history, there is not a uh, civil disturbance civil unrest of any significance or even a natural disaster which some sort of you know flash looting or appropriation of of goods uh didn't take place um so that's that's not uncommon also there's a tendency to treat looting as a way to to um uh to dismiss legitimate organizing work when in fact many people who are sort of seizing the moment uh, in, in, in this case, during an ep- economic crisis with 40 million people applying for unemployment, as if somehow those kinds of attacks on property or uh, appropriating property are themselves part of a movement, a part of a wing of a movement. And we know that's not the case at all. Um, what the question of looting does bring to fore are two things. One, um, what it goes back to, to, um, to Mr. Floyd's question, what is a black man's life worth? What is a black person's life worth? Um, is the destruction of property or taking things or taking sneakers or computers um, somehow more important than watching someone die on film? You know, watching the thousand, 5,000 some odd people killed by the police over the last few years. I mean, what's more important? And so what's the value of someone? The second uh, part of looting is it displaces the looting that is the history of the United States. We know that um, that human bodies, you know, were that black bodies were looted. That's how we got here. That indigenous land was was looting, uh, seizing that land. Uh, we know that uh, for for years um, the housing market has been a kind of form of looting in which value of, of Black-owned homes have been suppressed, Black wages suppressed, the transfer of wealth um, is a kind of form of looting. But also, if you look at the history of race riots in, in America, most so-called race riots were basically pogroms, going back to Cincinnati in 1839, 1841, going back to a uh, whole way, range of, of so-called race riots in Philadelphia. You mentioned Tulsa. Uh, in the opening of the show, Tulsa, Oklahoma, which was a kind of looting, not a kind of looting, but you're talking about uh, destroying 35 square, uh, 35 blocks of, of uh, black-owned property and businesses um, worth millions of dollars. Um, people going into people's, white people going to homes with the support of the police, taking black people's stuff, destroying and taking stuff. Um, Tulsa, Oklahoma, East St. Louis in 1917. We could talk about Rosewood in 1923. Uh, you know, there's so many examples. Springfield, Illinois, 1908. Um, and some of that looting is also about taking political power. And so one last example I want to give is the most absurd. And that is, you notice, um, uh, during 
uh, George Floyd's funeral, the New York Stock Exchange uh, decided that it would go silent and not trade um, for uh, eight minutes and 46 seconds. Now, what's interesting about that is that talk about looting. Wall Street has profited from police misconduct. I mean, to consider that cities have been paying out billions to cover police misconduct uh, lawsuits. When they can't pay out the settlement, what do they do? Um, they, they try regular tax revenue. They can't afford it. They fleece the poor with more fees and fines, and they also borrow. And when cities and counties issue bonds to pay for the cost of police misconduct, which is in the billions of dollars, um, banks and other firms collect the fees for their services, investors earn interest, and then using the bonds to cover the settlement, those bonds end up costing um, sometimes as much as 100% more than the original settlement. So this is a transfer of wealth from over-police communities to Wall Street, which go to Wells Fargo, Goldman Sachs, Bank of America. And this is what is called police brutality bonds. Robin, it's a great study with this. Yes. Robin, DG Kelly, we're going to have to leave it there, but we have okay, so great. much more to talk about with you, and we hope to have you back very soon. Uh, Robin sure. Kelly is professor of African-American studies at UCLA. He studies social movements, author of many books, including Freedom Dreams, The Black Radical Imagination. She asked him his name and told him what hers was He gave her a story about life With a glint in his eye and a corner of a smile One conversation, a simple moment The things that change us If we notice when we look up sometimes They said I would never make it But I was built to break the mold The only dream that I've been chasing is my own So I sing a song for the hustlers Trading at the bus stop Single mothers waiting on a jet to come Young teachers, student doctors Sons on the front line knowing they don't get to run Just goes up to the underdog Keep on keeping at what you love You'll find that someday soon enough You will rise up, rise up, yeah She's riding in a taxi kitchen talking to the driver about his wife and his children on a run from a country where they put you in prison for being a woman and speaking your mind she looked in his eyes in the mirror and he smiled one conversation a single moment the things that change us if we notice when we look up sometimes they said i would never make it but i was built to break the mold the only dream that i've been chasing is my Sing a song for the hustlers trading at the bus stop Single mothers waiting on a check to come Young teachers, student doctors Sons on the front line knowing they don't get to run This goes up to the underdog Keep on keeping it what you love You'll find that someday soon enough You will
Alicia Keys, that is Underdog. All right, folks, I received a call from a friend um, in Salinas Valley State Prison, and I wanted to ask him if he wanted to say something about Juneteenth, uh, you know, the exception clause of the 13th Amendment and any of its relations to what he sees out here and, of course, his experience on the inside. I am going to apologize right off the bat because I somehow cut off a piece of the very beginning of um, his statement. So it's going to take a couple seconds to, to get started if it seems a little bit of an abrupt start. Nonetheless, here we go. You call yourself introducing us too. We didn't participate into uh, Emancipation Proclamation. In other words, we didn't sign off on none of that. That was white folks. We didn't sign off on the 14th Amendment. At what point did a voice was, was heard that, look here, we want our total freedom. We don't want you to give us no pseudo freedom. We don't want to give we don't want you to give, give us none of your fakes. We want you to leave us alone and let us uh, go about the business of healing after uh, 400 years of, of chattel slavery. Now you done, you done got the cotton gin. Now you're rolling out the industry. So now it, it becomes a matter of how you gonna move, new, move, move this, uh, exploit this labor, free labor, in your new, your new economy. So again, that's why Lincoln made that statement in his speech. If I can win the war without freeing any slaves, I will. I would. But if I, if I have to free all the slaves to win the war, his, his thing, his thing was not about freeing the slaves. It was about the economics that was that was, that they envisioned for the, for the new colony that they that they uh, was expanded to. <clears throat> so so a lot of a lot of what Frederick Douglass said about the snake shedding the skin, the system sheds skin. It went it shed the skin of chattel slavery, plantation life. It moved it right in, moved 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 us right up uh, into the the northern uh, 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 region. Uh, uh, industries, uh, industrial war was what, what that was. And once that happened, you seen people go from a plantation to a ghetto and a project. Again, the age-old question is in front of us. The reason why uh, you see them targeting uh, 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 is what is it is to be done with the Negro? So so that, that's been an age-old question. They know that they was wrong in, in introducing uh, uh, the population of, of African people of African descent to chattel slavery, and even though they legalize it and they try to justify it with the moralities and all that, that they try to make it seem like uh, using a, a Christian uh, Old Testament and stuff, it, it's no way you can justify that. That's a crime against humanity. And so now they know that they wrong, and 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 in the deepest of, of their mindset. 
talking about the powers that be, they, they feel that they have to keep their feet, their foot on our neck because they, they, they fear retribution. And they literally acted that out with George Floyd. Right, and I would have to say that they're they're, they're showing themselves up on how they are they're repressing the, the protesters, tear gassing yes. them, uh, spraying them with rubber bullets. Um, I mean, they they've been caught on on film. I think some of the the Coast Guard slashing the tires and of of, of cars of people that were part of the protest. J- Oh, yeah? Uh, yeah, yeah. Talk about talk about property destruction, right? Um, yeah. So, and what would 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 you say that that is the same thing that's happening to you and and the brothers inside in terms of the repression that the guards who are really just the police inside prisons and how they've treated yes. you? Yes, historically, that's that's mm-hmm. the reason why uh, when when they decided that they wanted to remove. Uh, those that they consider to be uh, 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 nationalists and, and, and revolutionaries and radicals, uh, and that was in, in, a, in a report from CDC that they sent. Uh, 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 I believe it was, it, is, it was Ronald Reagan in 1971. They listed them, and, and, and they had they had listed those with that state of mind that would resist this type of system of, of, of social control and repression. And what they did was they did a roundup. And even if you're a jailhouse lawyer and, and, and you was pushing for human rights and prisoner rights, you was also thrown in there. And and so they had to remove those uh, uh, that had a consciousness to resist a system. And it's a beast of a system. It, it uh, It's nothing in this system designed to speak to your humanity. None. I think it's the counter. It's the opposite. You know, uh, uh, it's about filling up these cells and getting money with human bodies. It's not about like in other countries, uh, uh, helping helping those redeemed or return home, and uh, but to actually settle in and, and uh, contribute to advancing civilization. That's not in the discussion. So when we see when we see when we see uh, uh, historically. Uh, those who take a stand against uh, the system, they begin to repress. And so they use solitary confinement as one of their number one tools to do that with. And that's that's what, what really was happening. They knew that they was going to come with the California prison boom. And they knew that a part of that was that they was going to take and begin to uh, 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 target the whole uh, prisoner population to uh, what they had called, considered to be a systematic institutionalized program and and that whole institutionalized program uh, they was cutting, cutting money that they need uh, from from uh, feeding us uh, uh, so that they would reduce that down and and they was getting large money that was coming in that wasn't coming coming in for for the, the uh, purposes of the, attending to the needs of the prisoners, but for purposes of, of building up uh, their their coffers. So that's why we always say, follow the money. So uh, historically, the reason why you've seen what happened with George Jackson and many other conscious brothers leading up there was because you always find prisoners that say, look here, we human beings, uh, and at the same time, once we become conscious, we believe we have a right to educate ourselves and others 
uh, uh, to the bigger picture of humanity. And when you and when they come in and they repress that, that this call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. Say that one more time. Um, what happened after the hunger? St- uh, when the, when they had to finally let you out? Well, when they seen the writing was on the wall, wall in 2013, the hunger strike. Uh, 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 what they did, they came in. And remember, that was my first write up in, in 20 years. They wrote me up for a book, the first memory uh, right to have a book uh, that, that 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 was approved, and uh, 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 other first uh, uh, like like. Your right to uh, re-educate uh, your culture. Black August is my culture, and they did everything they could to try to keep uh, our bodies inside of the solitary climate still the multi-million dollar multi. I think they did each of those ninety-six thousand dollars a year. Uh, uh, they, they they need to keep bodies in those still the right on the wall that's not to release us. So they get everything else to start writing us up and and and, and issuing us once for rule violation reports. Uh, just the First Amendment first of uh, innocent First Amendment free speech. Can I ask so you something? Can I ask yeah. you something there? Um, just for our listeners, like to really there's such a direct link here or such a direct relation. You're talking about you're getting written up for having a book, written up for educating yourself, written up for these minor, basically First Amendment rights, but we know that the Constitution was not written, uh, was written during the time of slavery, and so it it certainly wasn't written for the the interest of those that were enslaved. So we know that that it sounds like the First Amendment you trying to exercise your First Amendment rights is something that um, they don't. The, the system doesn't feel like it needs to honor when it comes to um, to folks that are imprisoned. Because for people that are imprisoned, right? I mean, they so they're writing you up for things that they say you shouldn't have a right to. This does this sound like modern day slavery? Yep. Because they denied slaves the right to read and write, mm-hmm. and now they, they denied us the right to read and write. And, and punishing you for it. Yeah, yep, yeah, and punishing us for it. And we're talking about a, a, a torture. Subjected each time, it was six years more added on to, to your, your uh, indefinite, uh, indeterminate sentence. So, 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 so uh, uh, and then when we wrote a, I remember writing a letter out to San Francisco Baby, telling the community, uh, anything can do, anything we can do to help support the community. Well, they take that letter and and and, and they they use it as the first uh, 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 
six-year extension of Sanjay Gafarman you know, on Star Wars because we ran out the community all kinds of work and uh, help communities, you know. So that, t- that tells you that, that and, and this was so wicked with it, that it was blatant, it was blatant, that's racism, saying that you see institutionalized inside the police departments uh, when they target uh, uh, black folks uh, and other people of color who are whites for, for uh, uh, killing in the streets. And, and as well as what you see happen right there. So institutionalized racism, even though it stands back to, to colonial, uh, uh, is, a, is a part of the social control and, 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 and uh, the uh, repression that goes on both inside and outside. And, I, and that's why I make, I make it clear. Black lives matter inside, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. I really appreciate you uh, talking about you know, just so eloquently what's happening inside and and your take on it. I think it's going to be good for the people to hear. Thank you back. Uh, we, we appreciate you and, and humanity. Remember, it was Foucault that said the degree of a civilization can be seen when you go inside the prisons. Right. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Uh, thank you. All right, beautiful people. I'm here with William Palmer. He's no stranger to our airwaves, but for those of you that are new to the show, please go to prisons.org and check out our archives so you can hear previous conversations I've had with William. So William, why don't you introduce yourself? But before you do, I want to say congratulations to you on your new position with All of Us or None. Thank you. I really appreciate it, Jose. Uh, uh, you've always been a big supporter of mine, and uh, I couldn't have done it without your support and prayers over over a year oh. now since I've been released. <laughs> right, it's been. Is it? Has it been a year? Uh, March eleventh, two thousand and nineteen. Ah. And it's been a couple months now that the California Supreme Court uh, ruled that they wouldn't review uh, my petition uh, that I won to uh, gain my freedom. So I don't have that hanging over my head anymore. That was a lot of stress. And then I'm waiting for the opportunity to have oral arguments before the court. California Supreme Court on getting off of parole uh, as an extensive as, as an extensive extension of my excessive constitutional excessive punishment claim is the one that I referred to. I'm sorry, and will you say the date of when that's happening? One more time. Oh, we have no idea. Oh, okay. They just notify us whenever they're they're ready. I see. Okay. So, well. But the the ruling that you now no longer have this case over your head, that's got to be a relief. Oh, so, so much so. Uh, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, I was always in the back of my mind believing that they were going to, um, you know, send me back. And now they can't. So would you just drill down just a little? I know, I mean, this is such an important thing, and 
Um, we, you know, talked earlier that we don't have so much time, but that seems so important because you have spent 30, was it 30 years in prison? Yeah. And then you come out and you are, you have hanging over your head the possibility that you could go back. I yeah. don't think, like, would you just, can you just, yeah, drill down a little bit more in that? Because that just, I mean, that makes my stomach tight and I'm not experiencing what you're experiencing. <laughs> uh, what happened was, my 27th year of incarceration, uh, my law firm, O'Melvany and Myers, was just about to throw their hands up after spending, you know, over a decade and millions of dollars trying to get me out of the board of parole hearings. And at, the, at that time, uh, Senate Bill 260, which was a youth defendant bill, to give meaningful relief, and the Henry Butler case, which was supposed to set the terms, that came out, and at the same time, we kind of all met at this this juncture, and I asked for a youth defending hearing, and they was like, we gave you one. I was like, it's exactly like the last one when I was an adult. And they said, well, it's a youth defending hearing. We don't set terms. I said, thank you very much. And, like, that's all I wanted them to say. And so after it was over, I went to my attorney, and I said, look, give me, give me an opportunity to set something up here. I think we have an end. And I went to the law library, I studied, became an advocate for my own freedom, and I went back to her and I said, look, let's do an error of facts, give them a chance to do what they do, which is a blanket denial because they'll never admit that they're wrong, even if you show it to them. And let's see if we can get in the back door of Judge Klein Court up here in San Francisco because normally we go back down south where I'm from. And my attorneys did their uh, magic that they do as attorneys uh, using my uh, my strategy. And lo and behold, we got in. So the, the court, to make a long story short, the court said, this this sending back to the board, you know, and basically let him go. The board waited till that day of my hearing and decided to uh, appeal the issue. So they prolonged it uh, for about nine months or so. And... When it went all the way back up to the California Supreme Court, they sat it back down to the appellate court, and the appellate court said, okay, this is how you want to play. They said, we know Mr. Palmer's case thoroughly. We just don't know why you are fighting this. You are inhumane and unmerciful. These were some of the comments that they were making to the, gener uh, the attorney general, and I finally started to feel vindicated. Wow. They laid down such a... If you go look up in uh, Henry Palmer 2015, and there may be another one uh, when they shot it down, Henry Palmer 2015 too, where they have this language in there, you will see like why I became hopeful after all of these years. And so we eventually won that, went back to the, went back to the board, uh, and after that I was released with them appealing it. So always hanging over my head was this, you know, thought that they made overturn it, send me back, and start the process all over again. Uh, but before we left court, uh, I also put in another petition. My wonderful attorney from O'Melvin Myers, Kyra, uh, 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 she just pulled this one out of the hat. I didn't even, had no idea, and she was saying that if they find that you were constitutionally excessive punished all these years, then parole would just be an extension of that, and you don't even deserve to have to do parole. 
because uh, if you look at it from an adult conviction, I was 19 years over uh, the time I was supposed to be released. And if you look at it as a youth defendant hearing, I was 23 years over my time to be released. And mm. so this is where we at right now, still fighting this great fight. And it's ironic that we're in these times right now where finally um, for our society, as, as, as those of us of African descent, are finally being vindicated that we've been living under this white supremacist uh, system of racism and toxic trauma all of these years, and people somehow finally deciding that, oh, I think we see that now, and we're willing to accept that as truth. And so I have a double um, uh, experience that first you knew that you kept me in your slave plantations for far too long, and now you know that us as a people have been treated this way so long. So people have been asking me, like, what do we do now? And I belong to a group called We Are Beyond Return. And I also am getting ready to start a podcast called, or I'm starting it, I'm, I'm generating stories right now called Uncuffed Underground, and you can go to Instagram and find Uncuffed Underground uh, and stay tuned, you'll be able to know when the, the podcast officially gets launched. And what I want to speak to the people about is we as a people, as a nation, uh, even the world, uh, even even the world, need to perform uh, cultural ablution, uh, like in Islam, we take ceremonial uh, baths or uh, purification before we even begin to pray. And so we as a people need to wash ourselves from the toxic uh, trauma that white supremacist racism has launched since 1492. And I'm not even mad at people, uh, human beings. I'm just upset at the systems that they created, and I'm against the systems that they've, they've created to benefit a few. So what I would like to do for those that are listening is is really to explain how we got here and why we should, at this point, be vengeful or upset, but extremely grateful that we have this opportunity. So if you can imagine, um, as Muslims, I study the history, and Prophet Muhammad was like, we're going to defeat the Roman Empire. After I pass from this you know, earth, you guys are going to defeat the Roman Empire. So I'm going to pray to Allah that he protects us from our enemies and allow us, like, okay, I grant you that. Then he's like, I want you to protect us from ourselves. He's like, no, that's what you guys have to do. You guys have to protect each other from the treacherousness of yourself. Now, at this time, we've defeated the Byzantine Empire, the Roman Empire, and they fell into a thousand years of a dark age, the middle, uh, what was that, the, um, uh, the, the Middle Ages, where they went into a darkness. And this ain't just because they didn't have street lamps. This is a darkness of intellect, of spirituality, uh, emotional, physical, human development. Uh, the Roman Empire wasn't that nice to begin with, but you can now imagine them in this darkness where they were snatching their own people's land, they were murdering each other, oppressing each other, raping each other, and just committing atrocities where they perfected terrorism on each other. And so by the time 1492 came, when these so-called pilgrimage and Columbus set out to discover this new world that the Moors had taught them existed, um, they came and naturally 
they spewed this trauma that they lived under for a thousand years on everybody else, starting with the First Nations here in the New World. So with that, that's how it became okay. Like, when you think about it, how can a people take their wives and children to a place and watch someone be hung just because of the color of their skin or because they were accused of looking at someone? How could a people enslave uh, another people that they know live right in the next continent? They 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 traded with them. They've experienced life. They they got a lot of culture. Greek and Latin culture comes from Egyptian uh, uh, exposure. So it, this wasn't out of a vacuum. This wasn't out. Oh, we just hate dark-skinned people. This was out of a thousand years of trauma that they became these type of people that was capable of committing genocide on people they've never seen before and enslaved people that was actually the fathers of their. Uh, their intellect. So we come fast forward to today. Most people who call themselves white don't even know that this has happened, that it is coded within their DNA, cultural experience of life. And so now that they're awakening from this, it's what I like to believe is it's that time. Uh, the, the planets are aligned in what, be, what is um, the year of, uh, uh, what is it, the, the age of us? Uh, um, Aquarius, Aquarius. Mm-hmm. Yes. but I want to rename it something more po- powerful. This is the age of the slave. Mm-hmm. All of us who have been coming out of these slave plantations, who had to go through this uh, stuff evaluation and uh, in knowing how we became caught up in the system, what we needed to do to prepare ourselves, to rid ourselves of white supremacist trauma, and then come out to make sure that we would never... Uh, be affected by again, basically becoming immune to it. Who else better to lead us into what was to come? Because uh, we're not going backwards. So we're at this juncture where every single one of us has to question what type of trauma have we undergone during our lifetime. We're, and the first thing I want us to do is, is to stop using the language of white supremacy. And that's using the word white black, brown, red, yellow, to describe us as individual races. We are one human race. We are beings. And in Islam, it says, Allah says, kum kum, meaning be and it is. So even if you don't believe in Islam or any major religion, say you're just a scientist, you know that a big bang occurred. Boom. Some unmoved movers started this whole thing. And that's when we became beings. So be a created thing, and then the theme move, grow, evolve, you know, life. And so starting to use the word human beings for ourselves and each other will automatically start to wipe out and purify the white supremacy um, theology and, you know, um, philosophy and, 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 and indoctrination. And that goes for everybody. So they said, well, what do we call each other? I was like, uh, think he's European American. Uh, maybe he has red hair, blue eyes. So we could still describe each other without using the word black. But that is a general term, and we've seen how that's been weaponized. And one of the things about white supremacy is that when they 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 spewed this uh, trauma on us, it was just for because of our bodies were different. You know, as uh, soon as they seen uh, an African American, especially if he's a, a dark skin, they just it was weaponized by just seeing this. So by taking away the color of black, brown, white, and all this and saying human being, 
how do you treat human beings? How do you treat yourself as a human being? So treat each other as you want to be treated. And so that will begin to wash away uh, some, there's a lot of work to be done. Don't get me wrong. This isn't for tomorrow, next year, or next election cycle. This is going to be an ongoing process. It's going to take maybe a century to, to, to really rid us of this, um, this trauma that we've, we've, subject, we've been subjected to. So that's what I like to like start from, is the starting point of purifying ourselves as, as a nation, Maybe we need a whole new constitution. At least the 13th Amendment should be wiped out that, that allows slavery. We should be thinking about defunding the police department so we can use some of that resources into creating self-governing and self-securing uh, policing of each other. And that way, if we're not fair with each other, we can hold each other accountable. Right now, the police has immunity. We can't even hold them accountable for first-degree murder. And I would even go to say it's premeditated because they are trained tactically like a like an army uh, right. uh, to go out into the streets to kill the undesirables. And it's not just people of dark skin or African descent. It is also people of the New World. It's also people of European descent. They get killed on a large basis too. Uh, and, and so it is this authority. And one thing about racism is ignorance with authority is the worst type of uh, systematic racism that there is. And that's what we're experiencing. And so please, I work for all of our uh, work with all of us, all of us or none. It's more of an, it's not just an organization. It is a movement. We're headed to Sacramento on July 1st. If you're listening to this, please contact all of us or none and be one of the participants who will hold up a picture of over 500 people who have been killed by police officers. And we want to show that it is not just one or two bad apples. The whole cart is infected. The whole cart is rotten because it's too much rotten apples. And even those apples that may not be rotten, they're being infected by this as well. So we need to defund the police department. We need to defund the prison industrial complex. We need to defund the parole department and really allocate these funds into recovering from the trauma that we've been under for the last 400 some years. William, thank you so much for that. Uh, that it already just feels good. The, the invitation to cleanse and transform um, is so necessary. I so appreciate that. We have to come together again because I think we just need more of this. Um, so tell us again when this um, event is taking place and how people can get in touch with you if you would like them to. Okay, so this is an all of us or none uh, event that we're, we're headed to Sacramento on July 1st, the capital, the state capital on July 1st. Uh, we'll be holding up over 500 signs of those who are were victimized and killed by police officers. If you want to get in contact with us, uh, you can email me at T-A-R-I-Q, that's TARIQ, at prisoners with an S uh, with children.org. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, William. It's been wonderful talking with you and we will need to do this again. And again, thank you for that beautiful, beautiful invitation because we can get started on that right away. Yes. There's nothing more powerful than the power of love. And at this time, this is what we need. And Loving each other is not saying that what happened was okay. 
it's not letting anybody off the hook. There are systematic changes that will take place. And but this isn't a time for revenge or, you know, really um, trying to persecute anyone for what they've done. All of us are innocent victims for the most part of white supremacy and the toxic trauma that has been embedded in us for over 400 years. So we need to move, not be distracted by any of the, the rioting or the misbehavior. This is a symptom of people finally being tired and exhaling and just having a sense of, uh, of release to say, finally, you guys are paying attention. And moving forward, the critical mass that we have right now, taking it to its critical mass to, to where those who, who went to sleep one day thinking that they were in the power uh, position of white supremacy woke up and a shift has taken place. And now they are either going to be on the right side of history or on the wrong side of history. But this isn't a time for revenge or to be hurtful. This is a time to be come together, be a solid cement structure, to use the power of love, and to sit and strategize how we build what we need to be built. So we need hospitals, schools, supermarkets, and banks that are reinvented to be human, to be loving, and to be uh, beneficial for all human beings in this country and hopefully around the world. All right, we're gonna leave it there. Thank you so much, William, and we will definitely have you back to continue this conversation. Thank you for having me today. Okay, you have a beautiful rest of your day and we'll talk soon. All right. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, folks, that is our show. Please join us this weekend. There's a lot going on. Join me on Facebook, um, California Prison Focus's Facebook page. Um, Friday, Juneteenth at 6 p.m. Also, join me at 10 a.m. for our Facebook Fridays Live. So I have two shows going on uh, this Friday on the CPF Facebook page. And then join us, please, on on Saturday at the Car Caravan. You can get all those details at the California Prison Focus website on our calendar at www.prisons.org. You can join us at the Car Caravan to San Quentin that is um, organized by the Labor Action Committee for Mumia Abu-Jamal. And then on Sunday, please join us for the Liberate the Caged Voices Roundtable Dialogues. It will be our second one. That's taking place June 21st, Sunday at 11 a.m. till 12.30. Again, you can get all that information on the California Prison Focus calendar at www.prisons.org. Get ready for uh, Work Week with Steve Seltzer.